Tune in weekly and listen to the Collateral Damage Podcast, where Michael Wilson and Maureen Kavanaugh host a variety of special guests to discuss topics and available services that will help you learn about the impact that substance use has on our lives, our families, and on our communities nationwide. Episodes and listening information can be found at www.cdpodcast.com. You can also search for Collateral Damage Podcast on your favorite listening platforms or watch previous and future episodes on YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe and share. We'd like to thank Sunrise Detox for sponsoring this episode of Collateral Damage. Perfect. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of Collateral Damage. My name is Mike Wilson. I'm here with my amazing co-host. Maureen Kavanaugh. Yes, this is Maureen. And uh, so as you can tell, we are live from our homes as we have been recently. And uh, today we have a very special guest with us. Uh, Deborah Becker from WBUR is joining us. And uh, thank you for joining us, Deborah. I appreciate you taking the time. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Good to see you. And uh, so one of the things I want to talk to you about uh, is this series, How to Fix a Drug Scandal. So this is uh, Aaron Lee Carr uh, did a four-part miniseries on Netflix. Um, and, you know, I watched this show uh, primarily because it had to do with me. I was one of the people that was affected by this. And uh, so I was really interested in, in seeing how it went down. And, and this was a great a great documentary and I think it was I think it was well done and I think they they gave they gave me a lot of information about what happened and why it happened and even some things that I wasn't aware of even after watching the news when it was happening and uh, I noticed that you were on this particular uh, series and um, I guess my first question to you is how were you invited into that um, and what were you going through at the time that led them to reach out to you? Yeah, well, uh, we had done, WBUR had done a lot of coverage of the drug lab scandals. Primarily what we focused on to start was the scandal involving Annie Dukon. Mm. And she was the state chemist who worked at the Boston drug lab, the Hinton drug lab. And she was convicted on charges of falsifying uh, drug evidence. She was basically saying that substances were testing as illegal substances when she wasn't testing them and a lot of other things. And this, this happened back in, you know, 2012. Um, And uh, we had followed that. And then right after uh, she was in trouble and she, she was getting in trouble for this, there was another drug lab scandal involving another chemist out at the Amherst lab. And at the time that case was described, the Amherst case was described as only involving a small amount of drug samples that were compromised by a bad chemist. Mm-hmm. So we followed that not as closely as the Annie Dukon story, but we created this whole website called Bad Chemistry. We put all the legal documents up there. We did our own analysis of Annie Dukon's testing to show mm-hmm. uh, some of the problems and um, we followed it very closely. So six years later, uh, I get an email from uh, Aaron Lee Carr's folks who say, we're doing this documentary about the drug lab scandals in Massachusetts. And could we talk with you about it? Because you did a lot of extensive reporting on it. So mm. that was how, uh, how they got in touch. And, um, I, uh, and they came, they set up a studio in, in Newton, uh, and they asked me to meet them there. And we talked about it for a couple of hours and, and it was used in the documentary. And, you know, before the show, we were talking, and I think um, you know there was about a six-month gap between when Annie Dukan was uh, um, was exposed uh, for uh, forging tens of thousands of test results, uh, and then six months later, uh, Sonia Farak, um, who I think, like we were talking about before, you know what what actually came to light was that you know not only was she involved in a lot more, uh, but she actually had an active addiction. She she wasn't just forging, uh, she was compromised by her addiction. She was using samples, uh, which, you know, it makes sense that people would want to hide that. But, uh, you know, like you said before the show, I mean, Annie Dukan, her, hers was a lot more, uh, I have to say sinister would probably be the right word. I mean, right. she was, she was just, uh, what was it called? Uh, dry, um, dry labbing, dry labbing, yeah. uh, just signing and moving on because she wanted to, um, appease her superiors or she wanted to make people happy happy and those people that she wanted to make happy were the government (laughs) uh you know and they were more than happy to get these amazing results or unbelievable amount of results from somebody that shouldn't be able to get that many results and right man yeah yeah i actually think that the annie dukan story is a bigger story i mean the sonia 
Farrick story, she was, uh, you know, she started using the drug samples uh, in the lab and it was obviously hugely problematic and it was a mess mm-hmm. uh, to determine which samples she, was she using the samples that were supposed to be evidence? Was she yeah. using what are called the standards in the lab where, you know, this is sort of the pure substance and you're supposed to test the substances off the street against those to see mm-hmm. if they're the actual substances. So she was getting the real thing. Um, and, uh, you know, hers was very problematic because she was manipulating the system because of her addiction. Mm-hmm. In Annie Dukan's case, I think she was manipulating the system to be the most productive person in the lab. And her superiors really looked the other way uh, because she was getting such good results and processing tests so quickly. So I think to me anyway, the Annie Dukan case is more of an indictment of our criminal justice system that would look the other way um, because this is evidence uh, that presumably is being used to take people's liberty away and or, or at least cause consequences that are very long lasting for many people to have this on their criminal records. So the fact that that wasn't there weren't stringent guidelines about how the quality and the integrity of that forensic evidence was preserved is really disturbing. Um, yeah. And one of the most striking things to me in covering the Annie Dukan case was when the state police went to her house to arrest her. And if you, you can read the transcript um, of when the, when the police officer went to Annie Dukan's home in Franklin, Mass. to arrest her, she admitted that she had done this. She admitted that she kind of moved tests very quickly through the system and didn't actually test some of them because they appeared to be whatever drug the police officer may have said they were. But she sort of seemed when the officer was questioning her to say, well, you know, we were catching the bad guys. And so this is what we do. And I think she didn't expect to be in as much trouble uh, yeah. as she as she was in. So it was, it was a huge problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is definitely an indictment of the system that she works for and how people may view this is that, well, you know, they're criminals anyway, that must they must be guilty. You know what I mean? And, and exactly. instead of the due process of actually testing the evidence, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that some of my cases were actually taken off. Um, you know, I'm a person in recovery and I had quite an experience with the law and, uh, there were a few cases. One of them, um, was, uh, I was, uh, using cocaine and, uh, one of the cases I had, uh, I was cooking the cocaine in my car and I fell asleep in my car and I was awoken by the ambulance. Uh, they knocked on the door. Somebody thought I was dead. And, uh, you know, as a result, the police, you know, found the stuff that was in my car, Uh, It was the end of what I had been using. And so I had, you know, a little less than a gram of cocaine, but I had a bottle full of baking soda um, that I was using to cook the cocaine with. And it all got bundled together. And I ended up getting charged with a larger amount of cocaine, which ultimately became a felony and distribution charges. And I tried to fight it. And my public defender recommended a guilty plea uh, to reduce it to a misdemeanor. And that was one of the charges that ended up coming off. And I don't know whether it got tested. I don't know how far through the system it made it before I pled out. But, you know, I can understand somebody that, uh, you know, might have gotten a bigger charge because of that or had to plead guilty because of that and how frustrating that must be. Right. Right. It's really incredible. And, you know, it's still going on. I mean, just yesterday. Uh, Rachel Rollins, the district attorney in Suffolk County, filed a motion with the uh, state Supreme Judicial Court to vacate convictions of 64 people who pleaded guilty before their drug tests came back. And when those tests came back, the substances they were accused of having were not, the the test showed that they were not the substances. They didn't have illegal substances. So, but they already pleaded guilty. Uh, yeah. So it's a similar kind of thing that because it's more than 95% of the cases in our criminal justice system are pleaded out, right? And, and it's always the deal making and the pleading. And if you're pleading out to having a substance that then the test show was not the substance, that's an enormous problem. And, and I think that that's happening quite a bit. And when you have these questions lingering over our state drug lab, then you really have to uh, you know, that's potentially exculpatory evidence that could be used in someone's case to say that's not the substance that they're accused of having. So I, I think it's really problematic. But here's the thing that I think is really related to this podcast and related to, to your line of work. As a journalist, it was incredibly difficult to get people to talk like you're talking about having their cases dismissed because 
if it's not on your record anymore, you certainly don't want it on your Google record, right? right. You yeah. don't want it to be admitting publicly that, that you had this issue, these charges against you, if it's not on your criminal record anymore. Mm -hmm. So it was really hard to get people to talk about it in, in part because of that, but in part because of the stigma of addiction. And, um, and I, I think it's, it's so, it, it allows systems like this to continue because people are too ashamed to talk about it. And um, that is, is something that is, I hope is not an intractable problem. You know, I hope that podcasts like yours and people getting the word out will make people realize that, you know, you may have a drug problem, but if the system isn't uh, working appropriately and functioning the right way to make sure that you're treated appropriately, you're still a human being and you have a right to stand up for your rights. Yeah. Couldn't yeah. agree more. No, I think that that, you know, too many people think that, well, they're like, they're bad guys. Mm -hmm. So they don't really deserve the same standard of, um, of the law that we would that we would expect for somebody who wasn't um, addicted to drugs. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, the thing that bothered really, I mean, there was a lot of things that bothered me about about that whole case. And, and the, um, the documentary was that it was impossible for a very long time for her to be able to be producing that much work. She was producing four times the amount of work that anybody else in uh, in the lab was. And it was obvious that it could not, it wasn't humanly possible to be able to do that. And it took them that long to figure out that she was, that she was doing something wrong. It almost felt like they were in on it, you know what right. I mean? Like who, who cares? It doesn't matter. These people are not that important. They're, you know, drug addicts and it, let's not worry about it. Let's just keep pumping these out. And I found that really disturbing. Well, I mean, it was, it was obvious, but if you're aware of it and you investigate it, then you have to do something about it. And if you're getting results, why would you stop it? You right. know, and I think that might've been the mentality that a lot of people were dealing with. You know, I, I feel like the, you know, as a person in recovery, the deck is already kind of stacked against us as we go through this. You know what I mean? There's definitely a stigma. Uh, there are a lot of, um, you know, uh, uh, criminal charges that come with being an addict or an alcoholic. I mean, whether it's possession, sale, shoplifting, whatever, whatever you're doing to survive your active addiction, a lot of times it leads to these cases. And I mean, it's already stacked against us as it is that, you know, we come out with these, um, you know, charges and it makes it hard to get a job. It makes it hard for people to believe that we're going to change or capable of change. Uh, and then, you know, to have the same system that's supposed to be helping you or rehabilitating you or helping you move forward in your life, you know, adding charges. I just, it's, it's insane. Uh, right. And, you know, it was, it was hard to watch. Uh, like I said, I didn't realize how many people were affected by it. I was the only, I mean, I, d I didn't realize the depth, uh, you know, how many people were impacted and how much the, the city of Boston was debating whether or not they were going to uh, vacate these charges and all the effort they put in to try not to vacate the charges and try to retry them and, you know, all this other stuff. And I mean, it was, it was deep, you know, to see how far they were willing to go to back this incredibly illegal behavior that was done by one of their people. And, you know, I think, whether they were bad or not, whether these people were like, you know, one of the elements that I saw in there was concern that they were going to be letting out a bunch of um, killers, drug dealers that were going to go around. And as a direct result of these vacated cases, they were going to go out and start shooting people and killing each other. Um, but what they in fact were letting out was a lot of addicts who were selling drugs um, or who were caught up in that, uh, that went home and just tried to be, you know, with their families again. Uh, okay. And I saw even some of them were released and then told to come back to jail after they had Oof. been released, which was terrible. Uh, right. And imagine being the lawyers that then have to communicate. I believe it was uh, Luke Ryan, you know, having to communicate to one of his uh, defendants or one of his clients that, you know, I know that you've been out, but now you have to go back to jail. You have to say goodbye to your family and go back to jail. Right. And because they were trying so hard um, to not give in and, and let these people go. Was, right. Right. It is. It, it, it was it was incredible. It's incredible to think that none of this would have been cleared from anybody's record or even taken care of if it hadn't been for years of litigation yeah. and filings with the state Supreme Judicial Court. I mean, to me, that is just so incredibly disturbing that the folks in the criminal justice system didn't say, oops, there's a wrong. We need to correct this. That never would have happened unless it was 
you know, I can't even tell you how many motions, how many cases um, with the American Civil Liberties Union and the Committee for uh, Public Counsel Services in Massachusetts, the State Public Defender Agency, filing lawsuit after lawsuit to get these cases dismissed to say that the integrity of our forensic testing is completely flawed and you cannot base these criminal cases on this evidence. And, um, you know, without those lawsuits, none of it would have happened. That would still be on your record. Well, weren't there folks that, um, you know, were testifying? And I think this was acknowledged as the second uh, more devious layer of this was the kind of the cover up of everybody trying to cover up the significance of uh, the Farak uh, portion of the case. Right. And, you know, that there was evidence that was not being released to the attorneys. Um, there were lies told to um, circuit court judges. Um, there was uh, um, uh, blocked attempts to view the evidence. Uh, right. There were there were a ton of different things that were being done, not just by Annie Dukan or, you know, uh, anyone else. But there were uh, there, there were there was testimony like, well, we're not giving the evidence. Do you think you were wrong? No. <laughs> You know, and like what happened to those people? And well, yeah, those two, the, well, there was two assistant attorneys general who were found by a judge to have, as he put it, to have committed fraud on the court, which is very strong language for, yeah. for a judge to use against prosecutors, right? And the judge said, you know, you committed fraud here. You did not allow this exculpatory evidence to be reviewed. And the attorney you mentioned, Luke Ryan, was dogged in his pursuit of finding more evidence about Sonia Farrick's misuse of the drugs in the Amherst lab. Mm -hmm. So he eventually got the box of evidence, which the documentary explains. And in that evidence, he found Sonia Farrick's records of her drug use, which showed that it wasn't just a very short time and just a little bit of uh, messing with the drug samples. It actually went on for years. Yeah. And so with that, he went forward and it was uh, eventually determined that thousands of cases that were tested by Sonia Farrick then had to be deemed as compromised and those cases had to be dismissed as well. But again, it took a dogged attorney and a lot of litigation to get to that point. And those two assistant attorneys general, at least one of them is still working as an attorney for the government. And um, I believe that, I don't know what's happening, but I know that their cases for their disbarment were scheduled this month. And because of what's happening with courts now in this pandemic, I'm not sure what's what's happening in terms of those disbarment proceedings because of the drug lab scandals. But those were scheduled to happen now in 2020, seven years after the fact. You know, um, I, I have to wonder what would happen if I committed fraud in court. <laughs> it it right? wouldn't take seven years, that's for um, sure. I, I, I have to believe that there would have been a, a, a faster proceeding uh, and that I would definitely be facing significant charges um, if I was to commit the level of fraud that was committed um, a, a, within this case. And yeah. you know, to me, that's, that's probably the most disturbing thing. I mean, when I watched this was that the, the accountability uh, was so low simply because of the positions held um, and saving face. And I, I think that that was probably the hardest thing for me to swallow through that is that, you know, I am, I am not a public official. I don't have any sway. Uh, and if I had to face any of what they had to face, I would, I would still be in jail right now, uh, you know, for these things. And it's, it's, it's astounding. I mean, but it also seems like there's no, there was no system of checks and balances in either of the labs. Has that changed at all? Well, uh, the lab, the Hinton lab where Annie Dukan worked, and by the way, Sonia Farrick worked there for a brief time before yeah. she went to Amherst. Um, but um, the, in that lab, it all that lab no longer does drug evidence testing. And it was taken over by the state police. The state police actually, it all came to light at the same time as the state police were taking over that lab. And now they do the testing and they've, you know, they've accredited the lab. But there are some people who say, why are state police testing the substances for the police, right? Yeah. And even though it's individual chemists, it's a state police run lab. So there are questions about potential conflicts there, um, but it's not uncommon for a lab to be run by a law enforcement agency like that. So, um, you know, as far as we know, uh, we haven't heard of any problems uh, and, and 
certainly after this, you would expect that there would be better oversight. There have been promised better oversight. There are procedures that are supposed to be followed um, and, and presumably they are being followed. But Well, now the, uh, the name of our podcast is Collateral Damage, which means that a lot of our topics, um, you know, although specific, you know, what we like to discuss is the impact that that's had on the community, the families, you know, police, schools, all those other things that, that we look at that, you know, oftentimes we forget are also impacted like this, uh, by this. I mean, I talk about my own recovery and my own addiction, how I was impacted or how the people who were in jail were impacted. But, you know, I think that these, uh, the, the families, um, you know, the money spent uh, by the state to try to cover it up. I mean, there was a significant impact uh, uh, from all of this. And, you know, I think one of them, Maureen, you were highlighting this, and maybe you want to take over on this question is, you know, what happened to these folks, um, you know, when they were discharged or when they were let out or, uh, you know, as a direct result of being slighted by the courts, you know, what types of uh, uh, relapse rate have we seen? I think you wanted to talk about this, right, Maureen? What was Yeah, your... no, um, I'm just even, and now in general, I, we've had a lot of, I mean, there were a lot of people released because of that, but I know we've probably had about 100, how many, how many 900? How many people were released? Um, I don't know what it is right now, but I know it was quite a few people that were released due to COVID. Mm, yeah, and, that's right. Um, Sorry. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, well, well, um, again, litigation, I just want to point that out. It took yeah. litigation for people to say that we should be releasing people. And uh, the state Supreme Judicial Court is requiring, uh, appointed a special master to require all correctional facilities in the state to put, uh, to uh, submit weekly reports on the number of people who are tested in correctional settings and the number of people released. The latest report actually came out uh, just today um, and said that 1,100 people have been released in Massachusetts, 1,100 prisoners have been released in Massachusetts since April 5th. These are all prisoners. These are mm -hmm. scheduled releases and these are people okay. who uh, would have been released anyway and people who have filed motions seeking release because based on an earlier Supreme Judicial Court ruling, it said that some people could seek release if they fell into certain categories like pretrial, or technical parole and probation violations, they could file a motion to seek release. So in the past five weeks, 1,100 people have been released from jails and prisons in Massachusetts, some of them due to uh, the coronavirus, presumably most of them, although there's dispute about those numbers. So yeah, they have been released and there have been folks working very hard with correctional settings uh, like PARI, the police uh, assisted addiction recovery initiative i never get that right but i maybe i did um they are uh going to correctional settings and handing out what are called survival kits which um give people narcan and information about getting treatment and housing and insurance and other things to deal right. with those who may have a substance use disorder and and mash just got a grant for um help with sober living transitioning some people into sober living if that's what they're looking for too yeah. So yeah. at least they're doing a little bit to support people as they get out. Mm. Um, but I didn't realize that was 1100 was the total number of releases. I thought it was due to this. You know, I, I, I happen to know somebody that works in the in a correctional facility in in um, out in Concord, and there was in January a huge outbreak of some kind of virus that was not the flu. But there were no tests, you know what I mean? So I, I think a lot of people, there's no way to social distance in a jail. I mean, it's just not possible. So um, I think that, you know, we probably have no idea how many, how, how this ran through the prison system already. And I mean, are they testing anybody in there? Do we really know? Are they letting people out that have um, the conditions that we would be worried about you know they have low immune system or they have other things that um that you know that are that would cause anybody to have to isolate are we letting people out like that then we're not doing anything like that are we well um yes <laughs> unfortunately um uh the testing numbers aren't great in massachusetts either in terms of who's being tested uh for coronavirus uh some institutions are testing and some are not um in terms of so the the split of prisoners in the state is about half doc and half in county jails mm -hmm. um in county jails obviously have people moving through a lot quicker because there are shorter sentences and whatnot 
Um, some county jails, there's only two of the 13 county jails in Massachusetts. I'm doing this off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure this is accurate. Last check, only two of the county jails in Massachusetts had tested more than 50 prisoners. Um, so why, why are they not I testing mean, everybody? I don't understand. Well, that's such a good question. Isn't <laughs> Does it make any um, sense? because they say that they're, they're not testing people unless they're symptomatic. Uh, although there is pressure from advocacy groups and others uh, to do more testing. Do you feel In like that's a cost issue? Is, is the test just too expensive? No, um, I think it's, uh, we don't wanna say there's a problem here issue. Um, I think that- um, What are you gonna do if, they, if you find somebody? Exactly. If you find you know, you know, 50 people in there with, with COVID, what are you gonna do? Because you can't social distance, you can't move them apart. We don't have any rooms in the jails that are falling apart. Well, and- um, I watched a video of a gentleman <laughs> uh, who so had a cell phone in jail. I don't know how he got one, but he had a cell phone in jail and he was videoing, uh, videotaping himself or recording himself and posting it. And it was a video of him arguing the point that, you know, he was supposed to be out in like six months. And um, he was in there wearing his mask. And they said that he had um, a, uh, a roommate or cellmate, they're not roommates, his cellmate um, was positive for COVID. And they had him in the same cell and he's like he's like look i can't be six feet away i can't not breathe the same air this guy's breathing you know i can't open my my window and or go out and take a walk he's like i'm stuck in here and i mean it was like a four-part video and i mean i felt bad because i've been in jail before and i know that you know your access to like a case manager or an advocate is so limited you know, you're you're stuck with whoever you get. If you get somebody, you might be stuck with speaking which which, which correct whichever correction officer is on duty, and they may not have the ability to do anything for you except this sucks. I'm sorry, man. You know what I mean? And you know they're all taking the precautions, but you know, watching that video as somebody that's been in there before, um, you know, I couldn't imagine being in there and having to face this right now. And then, like, I'm going to be out in six months. Are you telling me that I could die in here? knowing I'm supposed to be like, there's a scheduled release. <laughs> well, I think it was in Ohio that this happened. This was in Ohio. They're all locked down in Massachusetts now. So as they start to open up, you know, they're not locked down anymore. And this circulates more in jail and all and the correction officers start getting it and calling it out, calling out, this is going to be a very dangerous situation that yeah. I think we're turning a blind eye to. So, there is there is some testing, I will say that, uh, you know, some of the places where they've seen a lot, you know, there are eight prisoner deaths at the moment in Massachusetts, five at the Mass Treatment Center in Bridgewater, two at MCI Shirley, and one at the Essex County Jail. And so in some of those hotspots, there has been testing. And, um, you know, there's, there's definitely, when they test, there's a significant number of people testing positive. And, um, and one of the concerns that the advocates have brought up is something you just said, Mike, and that's that uh, people with who are COVID positive are put in the same cells as people who have not tested positive. And it's, a real, it's a real problem. And we also just did a story because the Mass Treatment Center in Bridgewater has been such a hotbed because five of the deaths are from the treatment center, which is a, 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 a prison for those who are deemed sexually dangerous. So um, it, when we talked with folks who were released from their scheduled releases, they got out, they were never tested. They're coming from this hotbed of disease, this prison that's the was the, had the highest number of cases in the state and certainly still has the highest number of deaths. And they weren't tested before they were released. They got out and within days after they got out, they tested positive uh, for COVID. Uh, two of them were at homeless shelters and so Oh, and, and there's no policy to test people before they get out either, um, unless they are shown to be symptomatic. And when we asked the state about that, they said that they follow CDC and DPH guidelines regarding testing. We hope that you're enjoying this episode of Collateral Damage. Now, please take a moment to recognize our sponsors. I hit rock bottom so hard that I bounced twice. My disease had me battered, beaten and broken. I used to live and live to use. Nothing mattered to me. And it wasn't until I entered a detox that I had, you know, trained clinical professionals that were able to help combat my disease of addiction. At Sunrise, we understand the courage it takes to look in the mirror and go, I just can't do this anymore. Give Sunrise a call. 
If you're even thinking about it, your recovery has already started. We'd like to thank Sunrise Detox for sponsoring this episode of Collateral Damage. And now back to our episode. So you guys over at uh, WBUR, you've been, I mean, it's all COVID. I mean, I assume that most of the stories right now are the next opening, the next rules and regulations following, you know, uh, um, following Governor Baker's uh, uh, discussions around the next steps. And I believe there's a, there's a four phase uh, opening plan right now. Is that correct? Right. And I think it even has, I was looking at it the other day, you know, there's the four phases, which they just seem very logical, common sense phases. Uh, But there was an arrow at the bottom that basically said, if things ramp up, we're going to go backward again. And, you know, I think that, again, this is just a personal opinion about it all, but that, you know, this, this uh, need for everybody to get out is kind of forcing, uh, you know, governors, mayors, uh, everybody to choose between the welfare of their constituents and the economy that their constituents live in. Um, you know, and I think that the rush to do that is definitely going to lead us to open up and people are going to get way too comfortable with the idea that because they said we can open up now that it's safe. Um, and that's going to cause another rise of, uh, uh, contagion and testing and stuff like that. And then probably will push us back. So I'm glad to see, that the plan has that in it and that they're, they're comfortable taking steps backward if they have to. Um, and you know, I, I, I can't imagine what, what kind of coverage you guys have had and, and, and the stories that you've had to cover. But. Yeah. The, the news is like a fire hose. It just never it stops. It's just like constant, you know, covering uh, a lot of the, I, obviously I cover a lot of the criminal justice stuff. So the jails and the prisons and all the litigation, um, there are several lawsuits about that, but just sort of uh, all the health issues and looking at um, the state hospitals where we have people who, you know, very compromised, vulnerable populations um, in some of our, our state hospitals like uh, the Shattuck or Tewksbury yeah. State Hospital and what's happening in those places. So I, I've done a lot of coverage of that and, um, yeah, it's it's been nonstop. Um, have you had so. any Have you had any insight about um, Matsy or Massac, uh, which are the Section Thirty Five right. Civil Commitment Holding Facilities? Have you heard anything about how they're handling it, or has that come up in any of your stories? Yeah, there actually it actually has. There is a, a lawsuit um, uh, regarding uh, expanding the number of people who could seek release because of the coronavirus to include those who are civilly committed to addiction treatment, committed under Section Thirty Five. Um, and uh, because it's correctional, but th- that only applies to the correctional facilities, which would be, um, you know, Massac at Plymouth yep. um, and the Hampton County facility that's run in Western Mass and the Hampton County Jail, because those are the only two places right now that are taking Section 35 men. They're not allowed to uh, civilly commit women in correctional facilities because the state was sued over that. But Yeah, they used um, to go to Framingham, correct? And now they have Watsy. Yeah. And now they go to, and they go to Taunton State Hospital as well. Um, But in terms of what I know in terms of DPH numbers is that section 35 numbers are down, down, down by more than 50%. Um, And in MASAC, they're not, um, or MASAC, I always, I'm never sure how to pronounce it correctly. Um, They are way, way down, but they're not doing much testing there at all. Um, So I think people are reluctant to civilly commit people to addiction treatment because of the, you know, impossibility of social distancing in in these settings right now, and and inpatient treatment is also said to be down a lot. But the good news is is that outpatient, even telehealth, according to many providers, is way way up. In some cases, more than doubled, yeah. and they're saying that many of their clients, particularly people with substance use disorder, actually welcome telehealth and sort of virtual visits with a provider because it makes them feel less stigmatized and um, it is is proven to be helpful. Of course, we don't have statistics yet, so we'll see see what happens, but um, the providers anyway feel that that this pandemic could actually help addiction treatment because some of the things that were eased up on Mm -hmm. because of the pandemic for treatment may stay with us post-pandemic, and that might be a positive thing. I hope so. I mean, I think Maureen, you and I spoke about this on a previous podcast was yeah. the, you know, the idea of all the, the Zoom and video connection, like what we're using right now, this platform, and how it's opened up 
and removed barriers for people who may not have sought out services because they were uncomfortable walking through the doors of a meeting or you know, the judgment that they might receive uh, in a room full of 30 or 50 people uh, that they wouldn't walk through the door in the first place. And now they are, they're willing to. And so there's this, you know, our guest was talking about this next generation of people who are gonna like get into recovery using Zoom. And that when this is over, I would hate to see that resource go to the wayside where everybody goes back to normal um, and kind of dismisses this as a real tool because it is a real tool. Um, I use it all the time for work and I actually work with families all over the country that I never get to meet in person simply because of this. And I'm able to do so much more because of this. And so it's always been a useful tool. I'm just glad people are using it now for like individualized recovery. Yeah, yeah. And it does, it seems to be, it seems to be working. And, uh, you know, there also were, uh, there were some easing up, uh, there was some easing up of the restrictions on medication assisted treatment, like buprenorphine and uh, methadone. Um, there, the pre-authorization requirements to get the injectable buprenorphine, the monthly shot of, of buprenorphine was, uh, was changed. So more people are doing that. So that limits contact. If you only have to get a monthly injection, um, you're not, uh, so I think it it eases people's worries about the coronavirus to be able to get medication if that's the route that they choose. Mm -hmm. um, so there have been some some positive things. Um, we don't have current overdose numbers, and all the providers admit that there are people who are definitely falling through the cracks. Yeah. Um, and and um, sort of social distancing and and harm reduction are sort of conflicting ideas, right? Because if you're going to tell someone to use harm reduction techniques and make sure they're with someone or um, or things like that, you, you can't really social distance and do that at the same time. So there are some concerns about about long term effects and and what we may realize has happened. Uh, you know, treating an epidemic within a pandemic. Did the epidemic of addiction sort of get short shrift? I don't think we know that yet. Um, but I think that. That there certainly have been pockets of reports of overdoses um, that people are concerned about and, and monitoring. Um, but at the same time, there are folks who say that there's been a lot of positive movement um, in terms of people being able to access treatment. Um, so we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I mean, I, I work with families and I see that, uh, you know, there's definitely a reluctance to have people committed um you know for the drug use i think there's a reluctance to have people placed um you know my my job i like to call it seasonal um and and in that sense that i work with families who are trying to intervene on their loved ones so on and so forth and so there's a season to it uh you know with college kids it's usually around october or november uh, which means that the kids have had a chance to go back to school and the parents were just holding on, hoping for the best that school would fix it. And by October or November, that individual is still the same individual that went to school and then they start reaching out and calling us. Or it might be around the holidays, end of November, December, Christmas, um, or you know, Christmas vacation when the parents or family members have been holding on, hoping for the best, and then they see their loved one at a holiday and they're like, oh my God, we have to do something. And so there's kind of a season to when families call and the reason I'm bringing that up is I think that families right now and individuals right now are doing the same thing. They're just kind of hunkering down right. and they're reluctant to take action. They're not yeah. pressing the issue. They're not reaching out for treatment. They're just kind of surviving this like we all are. Yeah. Um, and they're not pressing their loved one. They're just grateful. They're not dead. You know, they're, they're spending time with them. They're like, you know what, just get like on Suboxone or Methadone and just hang out at the house and just be alive and be safe, which is good. Um, and my hopes are that, you know, when we get to the other side of this, that those individuals can get the treatment, whatever treatment it is that they need. But you're right. I'm glad to see um, some leniency, uh, you know, the methadone take homes that are being given uh, the, you know, the uh, more lenient restrictions on how to get Suboxone in the first place um, and the injectables and stuff like that. But, you know, I think everybody's really just holding on waiting because I've been getting a lot of calls of people that are like, we need to do something but we just need to wait like a month. You know, mm -hmm. it's almost like they're waiting to send their kid off to school. We just, we just got to see what happens here. We're hoping for the best, but we wanted to make contact just in case. And uh, I just did my first socially distanced intervention on Sunday. Wow. I got to tell you, that was a trip. Uh, How did you know, it go? So, 
Oh, it went great. I mean, he should be going into treatment in about an hour and a half um, tonight. And, you know, but it was, you know, it was unique because we had to, we built it up. We spent a couple of weeks preparing because we weren't quite sure what was happening. There was so much uncertainty around the timeline that obviously it would have been preferable for us to do what we normally do, which is get a whole bunch of people together, hug and love and sit really close and talk about important things and look each other in the eyes. Um, but instead, when the time came, it was, you know, masks, gloves, outside in the yard, six feet apart in lawn chairs, whoever's talking, one person gets to take their mask off. And then when they're done, put them out like it was, it was weird, you know, but it was also, we were able to make it work. And I think that's what people need to hear is that, you know, regardless of what's happening here, people are still struggling with addiction and whether or not we can do it the old way or we have to do it a new way, they still need help. And so I was really grateful to be able to participate in this and make it happen regardless of the circumstances. Like no matter what, we'll find a way to do this because this guy needed help. And if we were waiting for the pandemic to just go away, yeah. think of all the terrible things that could have happened to him or that the family might've had to go through over the next three to six months while we wait for this to subside before we can feel comfortable enough to use an old form of intervention. So everybody has to adjust and we're doing it and hopefully other service providers are, but I'd love to see the treatment programs making those adjustments instead of just holding on waiting. And some of them are, some of them aren't. And, you know, Darwinism will choose the ones that stick with us at the other side of this, because I think this is going to go on for a while and everyone's going to have to adapt and adjust and make sure that addicts and alcoholics are still getting the services that they need. So. Has anybody had the clothes that you know of? Uh, that's a great question. I don't have the answer to it. I don't, I, I don't think I've heard of anybody closing yet, but I, I think we will. I think a lot of the programs probably have enough capital to go a month or two without really making a decision like that. But I would say by the end of the summer, you probably see some, yeah. you know, that, that don't have enough capital to stick it out and aren't capable of adjusting. You know, they'll be the taxis of the taxi and Uber situation. You know, the Ubers will, <laughs> the Ubers will win and the taxis will die off. The people who don't change will go away. And, uh, you know, I'm as crazy as this is and as sad as I feel for the people who are directly affected by it, losing family members, not being able to see them in the hospitals, um, you know, not being able to have graveside funerals and stuff like that. Um, I am grateful that it's forcing us to look at whatever normal was before this, because in hindsight, it was not. <laughs> and we clearly need to develop a new normal, at least in the addiction treatment industry. And so I'm glad this is forcing our hand. It forced my hand, forced me to do online trainings instead of in-person trainings, forced me to uh, uh, adapt. And I assume it is also for you, Deborah. You must be uh, not bringing people into the studio, a lot more uh, over the phone slash video, right? Yeah, it's it's a big change. Uh, it's um, I don't miss my commute um, into Boston <laughs> every day, but um, it's hard to do a story when you're not there. Yeah. You know, um, and um, and when you have to do so much on the phone, we need three layers of approval to do in-person interviews and um, special gear. Uh, I've been out at the station for two months and um, uh, I have a whole remote studio set up in my daughter's former bedroom here. So, um, you know, it's it's hard to to feel like you're actually getting at a story when you're doing it all remotely. Um, but again, there's so much information that, uh, you know, sometimes you're just kind of writing it and doing it as quickly as you can anyway. Um, we're not doing as many, you know, beautifully produced, nice sounding, <laughs> you know, features that you kind of like to listen to that are, uh, that are very artistic and creative. We're, we're just kind of getting the information out there and churning it out. So the nature of the story um, doesn't warrant a lot of that anyway, but it is, it is difficult and it's, it's hard. It's hard to feel isolated from everybody. And uh, you realize how much energy you get, right? From your colleagues in the newsroom and- Absolutely. Um, right? Yeah. Um, that you don't get anymore and, and, uh, and how much that contributes to what you do. And, uh, and this tough. is different. This is great, but it's different, you know? And I, that's why I'm hoping that once we, you know, a year from now, maybe when we're, we're getting past this, because I think that's how long it's going to take, um, that we have some combination of the two things, that we have more of this, but also that in-person uh, connection to, to other 
human beings <laughs> instead right. of just sitting behind a screen. Yeah, I, th I think I yeah. think that you know it's not the same. No matter how much I think it add, has, it will add to how we treat people with addiction. I think right. we still, you know, I still desperately miss sitting next to somebody and across right. from somebody. Sad. Yeah. It's sad. <laughs> but yeah, I'm glad to hear, I mean, there are a lot of people making a lot of changes. And like I said, this is forcing our hand to reevaluate one of the favorite, one of my favorite memes. I don't know if you guys like memes. I can't get enough of them. Thank God for those people that sit in their basement and make memes. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, but anyway, I saw one the other day that uh, it, it was hilarious. It might've even been a tweet. I don't know. And it said, um, you know, uh, I've always said that I don't have enough time to get all these things done. And it turns out that wasn't the issue. I just wasn't motivated. Uh, you know, and I think people are figuring that out. Another one of my favorite ones is we're actually finding out which meetings could have just been an email. I like that. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, there is, there is a sort of like, you know, this is forcing our hand. It's like the pressure on coal, like something's going to come out of this. And I think a lot of diamonds have come out of this. A lot of, a lot of really good tools and a lot of compassionate people Online family support groups are thriving. Online recovery meetings, people are participating that have never participated before. Um, you know, there's a sense of connection, even though we can't do it in person. We're utilizing social media to do a thing other than what we were doing before. You know, it's now becoming a more useful tool to stay connected rather than just where we post cat videos and, you know, gripe at each other. So right. I'm grateful for all that. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I'm grateful for having you on, Deborah. But I do know that Maureen has a special question that she likes to ask all of our guests. And you're no different. She's going to ask uh -oh. a question. So, uh, uh, Maureen, do you want to you give her the business? Now, you sure you're ready for this? No, it's not that big of a question. I just wanted to tell you, too, I'm like, this is like such an honor to have you on, on our show because you were, I think, one of the first people that interviewed me. And um, after you made like almost everybody look bad after that, because you have such a unique way of interviewing and such a, it's, and it's such a, it makes the person feel so at ease and I wish I could replicate it, but there's no way that that's ever going to happen. But I would like to ask you, you if, um, you had one thing Now you've been covering addiction treatment and, and the whole opioid crisis for a long time. If you had one thing that you could look at this and change that you think would make a big impact what would that be hmm. well well thank you for your for your nice words um your compliments but i i think you know i i think that um when i started i started covering mental health and substance use and carved out that beat but so much of that intersected with the criminal justice system mm -hmm. that i had to sort of you know include all of it that now it's a big beat, right? Mental health, substance use disorder, and criminal justice. That's huge. But I think that it, it goes back to where we started. I think that the, the punitive nature of the criminal justice system for people dealing with a health issue has got to change. It's just got to change. It, to me, it makes it worse. I, I see so many people struggling with you know, trying to get on with their recovery and their lives after uh, dealing with addiction. They're now in recovery and they have criminal records right. and they owe tons of money and they can't get jobs or they can't get the licenses they want. They can't pursue a dream that they wanted because of that. So it, as much as you say, you can overcome this drug problem, this addiction and get on with your life, the criminal justice system doesn't let people really. It stays with many people forever. And I think if there's a way to change that, it will help uh, people feel that there's hope and, um, and help deal with, because I think it, it's, all, it's all a loss, a lot of it is a loss of hope and not seeing a reason to stay on the path Absolutely. of recovery. And if you feel that the obstacles are insurmountable, then I don't think, I, I think it just makes it harder for people to get better. Um, so I hope that there will be real reforms in our criminal justice system that will help deal with this public health issue because they can't be treated the same way. Uh, they just can't be. And it's a, it's a bad system. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. Yeah, absolutely. As That's a participant, a great... I couldn't agree more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. As a participant. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> well let's in, hope. Involuntary it... participant, volunteer, whatever you want to. I was there. You know? 
Well, um, let's hope it changes. Let's hope yeah. it changes, and let's hope that this this will make a change um, that that people will start to realize that it needs to it needs to have some significant changes if if we want um, people to to get better and to move on to have productive lives. Yes, absolutely. we're all people. We're all in this together, and some of us are struggling with stuff that other people aren't, and some of the symptoms are criminal offenses. You know, just like a sneeze. Sometimes I couldn't help it. You know, and. Uh, as long as I'm accountable for it after the fact, you know, maybe there's a program that needs to be put in place that takes into consideration somebody's recovery process and then revisits their record and assesses and evaluates some of the things that are on there to try to help them rebuild their life, assuming that they maintain their recovery. I mean, why not a rewards-based system rewarding recovery with the opportunity to clean up your past so that you can have a better future? I mean, why wouldn't right. that be just a given? <laughs> but it's right. not. That, right? And that maybe if we so talk difficult. about it enough, then it will become one. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Deborah, thank you so much for being on our show. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure to talk to you about this and the many topics that we got to discuss. Um, if you're listening and you'd like to hear more from Deborah Becker, uh, you can go on to WBUR. Now, what, how, do they, how do they find you? Is there a website or do they, what's the station? Um, WBUR.org is our site and, you know, you can search it. Uh, yeah. And and read our stories and, and read our coverage, send us news tips, um, all of that great stuff. Yeah. And I, and you guys keep me posted too. It's always great to talk to you. And, um, you've always been great resources for my stories. I really appreciate that because it helps to tell the story, you know, from real people's perspective. So, um, I appreciate all of your help too. Excellent. Well, if I can ever be of use, please let me know. And I know Maureen's a, 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 a wonderful resource. So, yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, for all our listeners, thank you for joining us on today's episode of Collateral Damage with uh, our special guest, Deborah Becker. And uh, if you'd like to find out uh, how to listen to or watch more episodes, you can find us on Facebook, Collateral Damage Podcast. Uh, we post all of our episodes on there. You can like, you can comment, you can share, you can do all three. We'd love that. Um, if you'd prefer to watch us, you can find us on the YouTubes. Go onto the Googles, into the YouTube, and you type up Collateral Damage Podcast. We pop up. Make sure you subscribe, click the notifications. That way your phone will ding when we put out a new episode and force you to look at that little red dot and require you to attend to it. And then you'll get to see us and you'll get to watch us and listen to us. You can also find us on Instagram at CDPod. Uh, and please feel free to send us any comments. Uh, we love comments. Maureen and I love to talk about all the, uh, the different information that we're giving. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode, previous episode, future episodes. Uh, and again, thank you for listening and please join us again. Take care. We'd like to thank Sunrise Detox for sponsoring this episode of Collateral Damage.